I literally, as an undergraduate, I took one math class and it was math 110. It was like the gen ed requirement for math. And they taught you how to divide pi. And I don't mean like 3.14. I mean like apple pie, like fair <laughs> decision-making processes. I was not a math person, or at least in my head, I wasn't. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. So Tyler, in a previous job, when I worked at a medical school, I was called a social scientist, and I am absolutely not a social scientist. The reason that they called us that was because there were people who did medical science and people like me who did work in the humanities, and they said, well, you're not medical scientists, but you have to be scientists because this is a medical school, so we're going to call you social scientists. But it was always such a joke because there is a thing called social science, and it's a totally different discipline than what I do. Right. Working in a medical school, I, I hear that a lot also. So I'm on the Institutional Review Board, which is the, the committee within the medical school that all of the research has to, that involves human subjects in any way uh, will have to go through this board to get approved. And to be on that board, there are different roles like scientist, community member, uh, physician, and the medical school committee needed somebody to be another scientist. And they looked at me and they said, well, surely you're a scientist in some way, right? You can't be a doctor without being a scientist. And I pushed back and, and I, I was saying that that doesn't make any sense. Like, look at my training, look at my background. But uh, eventually, head of the committee declared that I had to be a scientist. And so I, I am officially a scientist. Yeah, I mean, at one point in history, we would have all been scientists of a different sort. But these days, it tends to get reserved for particular kinds of fields. So it's always funny when you get called a social scientist. So today we're actually going to be talking to a real social scientist, a sociologist, who does work a little bit differently than we do. So a lot of my work is informed by kind of my humanities background in philosophy and theology. So I, I sit around reading a lot of books and then uh, writing about those books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas a, a real social scientist will be out in the field talking to people, interviewing people, doing qualitative research, doing quantitative research, which is about numbers and using all these different methods. And really, at some point, I had to learn how to do that kind of work because more and more universities are wanting people like us to get big grants. And it's hard to get a grant unless you can do the empirical data work. So you have to really be gathering that kind of data in a systematic way in order to prove something. Apparently, it's not enough to just read a book and have a great take on it. That's not proving anything uh, necessarily of worth to somebody who wants to give you money. So it's just a very different uh, skill set. And I think that I remember in grad school, we had to take a class in statistics. That was the scariest class that I had taken the entire time in grad school because numbers are not really my thing. Oh, totally. Numbers are not my thing, which is so funny because my husband is such a math geek. He loves his current job because he said, there's so much math involved. I just love it. And I'm like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I, I've never once thought that. <laughs> 
you know, math, a lot of it really like there is an answer. And I like the gray areas of life. pleased today to welcome Professor Jason Wasserman. Jason is an associate professor in the Department of Foundational Medical Sciences and the Department of Pediatrics at the William Beaumont School of Medicine. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. And we're having you in part because on our first episode, we made fun of you and we feel like you need some redemption here. You need to set the record straight. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really didn't feel like you were making fun of me. In fact, I think uh, Tyler started off trying to plug my uh, brilliant tweet. It's exactly what I was doing. Yeah, so, so, so the tweet was about getting fatigued with headlines that say COVID exposes and then some sort of like really obvious phenomenon. And, you know, I heard you guys discussing it and I think Matt took it to be about things in healthcare that COVID is highlighting that and, and made the point, which I think is correct, that the average person isn't always aware of those things. Uh, my tweet was really more about things like uh, COVID exposes racial inequality. And of course, you know, what America have you been living in if it takes COVID to expose that for you? So yeah, I was thinking less about like the dynamics and the structure and function of healthcare per se, and more about broad social phenomena that I think everybody should really be pretty well aware of unless they were, you know, really deliberately trying to avoid, avoid it. Good. Well, we'll once again, plug your Twitter because you are a very avid and uh, profound Twitter user, if there is such a thing. You know, I'm trying. <laughs> well, the real reason we invited you is that you are also somebody who does a lot of work in bioethics and the work that you do, we find really interesting. So the first question we want to ask you is, do you consider yourself a bioethicist? Yeah. So um, I also heard Matt Winnie's uh, response to this, and, and I think he was right to say that almost everyone's going to say no. And now that makes my answer, which is similar, feel unoriginal. I guess what I'll say is it, it depends on what, what room I'm in. So if I'm in a room of people where I am the I am the bioethicist in the room, so to speak, then and I kind of feel like a bioethicist. But if I'm in a circle of people I consider bioethicists, then I feel more like a sociologist and less like a bioethicist proper. So I think some of it is relative. That said, you know, I, I do have somewhat deep roots in the general field of bioethics. I, I guess I am as much as, you know, at least as much as the average bioethicist. Jason, tell us about your journey to get to this point then, because you came through a, an avenue that is unique even within bioethics. Yeah. So, you know, I think I started off actually pretty traditional and then went astray and came back. My entry into bioethics really occurred in my ninth grade year of high school when I joined the debate team. And the very first resolution that we debated was resolved terminally ill patients have the right to die when and how they choose. And this is, of course, a you know, in the years when Kevorkian was really in the news, and, and I think that motivated the topic itself. I, I, I did high school debate pretty seriously for four straight years, but that was the very first topic, and my interest in it really never, never waned. So then I went to college, really more out of expectation than anything else. I wasn't, I really didn't know what I wanted to do career-wise. I didn't really have any defined interests that could be reasonably understood as professional or, or entailing a future profession. So I majored in philosophy just because that was what I was interested in. I was told many times along the way that there was no career in it, including by um, some of my mentors in the philosophy department. But, you know, that's what I was mainly interested in. I concentrated in my undergraduate years in applied ethics and medical ethics. I was a student of Jim Rachel's and Greg Pence at University of Alabama, Birmingham. And as I started looking towards a doctoral program, though, I think some of the some of the talk about 
how difficult it was to find a job with a PhD in philosophy probably started to get to me a little bit. And I wanted something, you know, much more applied, I guess, but I was still very interested in the theoretical aspects of what I'd been doing. So I actually went to a PhD program in medical sociology. I moved over into the social sciences. I was terrified of the, the research methodologies that I would have to learn because I had always been really bad at math. That's probably something else that pushed me towards philosophy and the humanities. But statistics made a lot of sense to me. So I, I kind of took to it a little bit more than I had expected and ended up being able to make a career out of it. I'll tell you, just because this is related to bioethics, one day I was, I was absolutely terrified of the statistics sequence. I had just gotten started and was, was really putting a lot of effort into learning that stuff. And um, I went back over to the philosophy department one day and Jim was in the hall and just asked me how grad school was going. And I said, oh, you know, I've, you know, I've never taken a lot of math and I'm really nervous about the statistics. So I'm just, you know, trying to work really hard at it. And he goes, I love statistics. It's very philosophical. And that was all he said about it, but it completely changed my perspective about what I was doing. You know, it's these really good mentors that sometimes they sit, they just drop these one-liners on you that change your entire way of thinking. From then on, I realized that the math is just on the surface, that statistics is really fundamentally about conceptual and philosophical interpretation of the world around us. And that made it so much more interesting and, and became easier after that. So what other kind of work are you doing either research-wise or in the community that, that deals with bioethics? Yeah. My PhD work was in, was an ethnographic study of the street homeless. We were on the street, not on the street, literally, but like going out to the street and doing in-depth interviews and homeless individuals in uh, the Birmingham, Alabama area for about four years. Uh, we made a documentary film and, and published a book along with several articles out of that work. I, some of the themes out of that work centered on the medicalization of homelessness. And can you tell us what you, what do you mean by the medicalization of homelessness? So medicalization is a sociological concept that refers to the phenomenon where non-medical conditions come to be seen through the lens of medicine. This is a process, a social process that's riddled with power and commodification and all sorts of things. But basically the, the classic instances are childbirth and um, addiction. So, you know, back in history, physicians didn't really attend to childbirth. It was, you know, lay midwives, people in the community. Physicians were only called in in the most difficult of cases. They didn't really want to touch that as an area of practice, but of course, medicine continues to subspecialize, and part of what that entails is seeking new areas of practice to kind of keep volume up. And then also you obviously have the development of different technologies that can intervene on birth processes. And so you see birthing become a very technocratized kind of phenomenon and becomes kind of the purview of medicine. There's some pushback against that now with the move back towards midwives and inviting of doulas into the process and things like that. But so yeah, medicalization is just when something that wasn't medical in the past becomes seen through a medical lens. You know, addiction was seen as this bad behavior, something immoral. Um, and now it's seen very much as a medical process, like a, a disease. We use disease language to describe it. We respond with professional medicine response to it as a disease type. And so homelessness is really an example of medicalization by proxy, which means that we understand homelessness to be a function of mental illness and drug addiction, which are you know, understood now as medical conditions. Much of what we found in our research pushes back against that interpretation of, of homelessness in any number of ways. You know, basically that's a myth about what the primary of causes of homelessness are. So Jason, what are the causes of homelessness? 
primary causes are really rooted in the social structures of our society, the rampant inequality, the decline in living wages and real dollars since the 1970s, race discrimination, uh, institutionalized racism, and all of those things. So Jason, so what you did was you went out and you interviewed people. You found out these kind of root causes. And, and today we might call that kind of empirical bioethics, how you are integrating those kinds of methods into the work that you do. So why is it helpful in bioethics to use empirical methods like that? Yeah, I think we just bring so many assumptions to the world. All of those assumptions, if we're going to approach any kind of phenomenon as part of a quest for truth, then we have to interrogate all of our assumptions. And that's what empirical work of any kind is really about. And I, and I, I do believe that lots of things qualify as empirical work, but sometimes we don't call empirical work, right? If we're being um, reflexive and critical in the process of doing clinical ethics consultation, in other words, we're questioning the assumptions we're bringing to that work, we're trying to observe broadly all the things that are happening so that we can take in more data to do a better assessment of the situation and make better judgments, even just for that, for one particular patient or, or healthcare team. I, I mean, I consider that a form of empirical work, whether it's working off of a large data set, doing a qualitative study, or just being mindful and observant in a practice situation. I think it's always about trying to broaden our awareness and push back against our assumptions so that those don't cause us to go the wrong direction. So Jason, what kind of uh, questions were you asking the people that you're interviewing during this research project? Well, so perhaps the best way to, to get into that is to talk about how we got into the research in the first place. I made a documentary film just before graduate school about a drug called Resilin that had gotten on the market and shredded people's livers and um, had really been pushed through the FDA fast track process through some political pressure, et cetera. Uh-oh. I hope that's not telling us anything about future medications. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, it might, you know, the, it's, it's always been a highly politicized process. So COVID unmasks politi politicized processes at the FDA. People who had already looked into that knew well that it's already a relatively politicized process, although not, not always, but it can be. The relationship between the drug companies and the, and the government is, is well established. But so because I made a documentary film, though, um, one of my mentors in graduate school, Jeffrey Clare, he was interested in visual sociology and he wanted to teach a course on visual sociology. So we agreed to co-teach that course. So we decided to organize it around a whole class project of making a documentary film. Each you know, student in the course you know, contributed in some way. Like we made them into like a film crew as part of the teaching method. And we picked homelessness as the topic for that documentary only because we had experts in the department who had studied homelessness for many years. They had done what they call point in time counts for the city and so forth. We figured they could, we could interview them. They'd put us in touch with the right people. We'd polish off this documentary in a semester and that would be it. What happened was we started to notice some real inconsistencies in the accounts about homelessness, even from the experts and the, the people in the city on the front lines of homeless services. So for example, when we would interview director of a shelter, we would put pointed questions to them to respond to, you know, things like, well, a lot of people think that homeless individuals are all just crazy drug addicts. You know, is that true? I mean, we knew it wasn't true, but we wanted their reaction to those stigmas. And they would say, oh, no, no. You know, the average American is only two to three paychecks away from being homeless. Homeless people are, you know, just like you and I. They've just not been able to weather a financial hardship, et cetera. You know, and they push back against those stigmas. And then we would ask them, well, you know, we drive around the city. We see all these people that stay on the street 
rather than coming to shelters, you know, why would someone do that? And they go, well, you know, a lot of them are paranoid schizophrenics or um, they're really bad drug addicts and they can't do drugs in the, in the shelter. So they avoid us. It's like, we start going, wait a second. You, you told us homeless people generally aren't crazy drug addicts, but you know, these people over here that are resistant to your services in some way that you're not connecting with, those are you know, crazy drug addicts. Like the stigma is kind of replicated uh, among that group. And that was, a, we were curious about that. And then we would go onto the street and ask the people out there who were experiencing homelessness, like, why don't you go to the shelters? They would rattle off this very long list of incredibly lucid reasons why they didn't want to go. And, you know, after hearing a lot of those reasons over and over again, we started thinking, you know, I wouldn't probably go to a shelter if I was homeless. I mean, these, these guys were making a really good case that it was much better out on the street. And so we ended up staying on the street a few times with, uh, in different encampments with some of our participants. And then a shelter director was like, you know, you really can't say that you wouldn't come to a shelter unless you've stayed in a shelter too. I said, well, fair enough. We made arrangements with him where um, he didn't tell any of the staff, but we showed up at, his, at their shelter during check-in time. My collaborator, Jeffrey and I, we, stayed, we, we didn't talk to each other. We stayed apart because not a lot of people check in the shelter together. And we went through the whole check-in process. We spent the night there and it was a pretty harrowing experience. And we kind of left there pretty sure we wouldn't go to a shelter if uh, we became homeless. For example, I was standing in line and they dragged this guy out holding this bag full of like prescription medicine samples. And he had apparently been inside the shelter and he had gotten in this pretty young kid's face who I later had dinner with and, and threatened to gnaw his effing face off. And there was a lot of screaming and yelling and I just, it was just tense. And then went in, you, got, you get patted down, which is never a good feeling. And then I was sitting there eating dinner and I was talking to this 18 year old kid and this, this shows the medicalization of homelessness a little bit, but he said, he was asking me questions and I was trying to be as truthful as I could. And he said, well, do you have a drug problem? And so I said, no, he goes, oh, you do now. They won't let you in the program. If you don't have a drug, if you don't have a drug problem, you'll, you'll never get a bed regularly. If you don't have a drug problem, because tell you what, just tell them you're addicted to clonopin. They can't detect it in your bloodstream. It's addictive as hell. That'll get you a bed in the program. And this kid had been homeless for like seven days. And he had already learned that the system basically requires disease, especially at the time. Some, some has changed since. And then my colleague, Jeffrey, was sitting at another table and these guys are talking at his table and they go, look at that guy. Look at that guy over there. Look at his eyes, man. Now nah, that guy's a cop. That guy's a cop. And they're talking about me. And they proceeded to uh, say to Jeffrey and in front of Jeffrey that they were going to uh, stab me in my sleep. They didn't want cops around. Yeah, it was a harrowing experience. And then you wow. go up to the beds and a lot of people, we have, we have physicians that call the shelter where I'm on the board of directors now. And they go, do you guys have any rooms tonight? It's like, yeah, we have one big room with a bunch of bunk beds. They're really close together. It's not a comfortable place. And it's important to know that because if you're discharging someone with an infectious disease or something, I mean, it can be really bad. But yeah, you can touch people on either side of you in your bed. I mean, they're that close together. You know, you compare that to sleeping under a bridge, which doesn't sound great, but basically like camping and you get to choose who's around you and you get to man you know, manage your boundaries and you have, you know, the freedom to come and go. There's, there's an appeal to it. And I mean, that's just the reality of it. So Jason, it seems like COVID would exacerbate these sort of issues too. You might not want to be in a shelter with a disease like COVID going around that is so contagious. So do you know what impact COVID's had on the homeless population? Yeah. Um, I mean, I only know from the shelter that I'm on the board at and it's had some impact. Most of the impact has been financial because our shelter has, like many, has been basically quarantining 
COVID positive or suspected positive homeless clients in motel rooms, which is incredibly expensive. Now, there's some additional funding they've been able to acquire to support that, but it's it's had a major impact on the finances of, of different institutions, at least those who are trying to manage it well. And, you know, you're talking about a fairly, in many ways, unhealthy population from the standpoint of massive problems with cardiovascular disease, untreated, you know, blood pressure, untreated cholesterol, diabetes being rampant. A lot of people think of homelessness as a, a condition of only of of deprivation, and it is on all sorts of different factors. It's also a condition of excess in some ways, because the soup kitchens and the the shelters, especially when they're staffed by volunteers, um, rarely serve healthy foods. They rarely have the resources to accommodate diabetic diets. And so things can get really out of hand really quickly. It would seem to me that maybe even the average bioethicist wouldn't think of homelessness as a bioethics issue. So what makes it a bioethics issue? Yeah, and I'm not sure I, I did at the time. And But look, I do think that bioethics, at least broadly, needs to be concerned about the variety of ways in which inequality impacts health, the ways in which we design social systems to meet the challenges or, or the ways in which they fail to meet the challenges of inequality in health. And man, there's so many ways in which our healthcare system just falls on its face when it comes to interacting with homeless patients, from the stigma that they face when they're inpatient to the treat and street kind of process of dealing with them in the emergency department. Unbelievable recidivism among homeless individuals because they they don't really have access to care, not the kind of care that they need. You know, and then the way in which they can't access outpatient care and, and specialist care and get it's it's unbelievable. When we saw Michigan expand Medicaid, most of the individuals in the shelter went from not having insurance to having insurance. And there's still very strong barriers to access, but some of the, the things that could happen right away were unbelievable. We had a, a client who had, a, had broken his leg after getting hit by a car and couldn't get it fixed and also do, didn't have transportation. So he's walking around on a broken leg and it healed in kind of a bowed way and which made it painful for him to walk for years and rendered him unable to get employment. As soon as he got insurance, he was able to get that leg fixed, and now he's working in, in, in his own apartment. I mean, it's, it's just the simplest thing in the world when you really get down to it. And it, it, it's really troublesome that the way in which we politicize it and intellectualize the, the whole thing just really stands between um, people getting the access to healthcare they need in one of the you know, historically wealthiest countries in human history. You know, it's, it's, it's really frustrating. You know, and, and I feel partly like, you know, complicit in the intellectualization of it all. Um, so one of the messages I always try to deliver is that, look, homelessness is at its core a housing issue. And if we would just give everybody a house and consider that a fundamental right in a, in a modern society, a lot of the challenges would fall with that very simple act. So Jason, one thing that I've noticed in my clinical work is that it's often very difficult to discharge patients who are homeless because there's nowhere to discharge them to. And so often ethics is called because the patient is maybe not totally better, but they don't qualify to stay in the hospital anymore. But you know that if if they don't have stable housing, then it'll be very difficult for them to follow up with physicians, that they might not be able to go to the pharmacy and get the drugs that they need to complete their treatment course. So do you have any advice on that? Or or how do you sort of think about those problems of when people who are homeless go to the hospital and they need to be discharged? It's it's really, really challenging. I think I think the ultimate answer is that people in healthcare need to start advocating for greater community services and they need to start voting that way. 
and they need to start demanding accountability from local, state, and federal governments on that front. Because you're absolutely correct that the hospital is the most cost inefficient place to deliver homeless services, and yet is forced sometimes by law and other times by you know situ- the situation to do just that. And if there were more stable community resources available, then we, I think we'd all be better off. The patient would be better off. Uh, we'd be better off financially as a, in terms of the healthcare system. And it, it really is just kind of a, a sad and epic failure. I mean, you know, a lot of people point towards the deinstitutionalization of the uh, mentally ill from large state hospitals as a precursor to massive increases in homelessness, uh, particularly in the 1970s. That's a suspect explanation for a, a number of reasons. But even if it were true, you could blame deinstitutionalization itself, but you could also equally, and I think more properly, blame the fact that the money that was going to those state hospitals was supposed to materialize in community resources to help individuals within their communities, and it never showed up. So they're not on the street because they're deinstitutionalized. They're on the street because they're deinstitutionalized, and no no one ever provided the in-community support that they needed. And we, we continue to choose not to do that every single day. I think that's number one. I think also, though, on the little bit more critical of health systems, the way that social work is done in health systems, I think, is overly bureaucratic and um, restrictive. And I think a lot of social workers feel this way. That, you know, the social workers are supposed to connect people with community resources. But they work from in the hospital. They don't actually often have the freedom to navigate people to those services in a literal sense. Um, They give them bus tickets to get to this shelter and they try to coordinate, like make sure you're here at five o'clock for check-in. And there's this entire like maze of rules and regulations that an individual has to navigate. You know, it's it's hard for anyone, but especially if they're ill, their thinking is disordered in any way. You know, I often refer to the social service system as kind of like a straitjacket. What I've at least heard is the the trick about a straitjacket and the reason that Houdini could always get out of them is that they're not that hard to get out of. You just have to do certain things in a certain order in order to get out of them. But they effectively restrain people who can't order their thoughts in that way. And it's, it's very similar. The, like, the, the system can be leveraged for success to get back into housing, but it's in rigid and bureaucratic and it requires such a complex ordering of thoughts. Like I need to make sure I get to this emergency shelter and their check-in is at 4 p.m. And if you're late, then you don't get a bed. But then when I move to, you know, a 28 day or a detox facility, they have these different rules. And then I move here and they have these different rules. And if you screw up, you just drop out of the system and you're back to the start. And they, you know, they call this a continuum of care, but I've always really referred to it as a labyrinth of care. And so Within the hospital, I think they're, they're cut off from the realities of the services that are actually available. They don't, don't often know about all the available services in a community because they're in the hospital. And then on the community side, the services are poorly coordinated often, and there's just not enough of them. And it's a recipe for disaster, really. So what are some ways in which people engaged in healthcare can improve that system? I mean, what, what are some ways forward? Yep, I think, well, so what I mentioned before is we need to be advocating for more social services. Uh, We need to be advocating for a true housing first model where people have a a right to housing in our society. But that's something we can all do. I think that hospital systems would be well, the efforts would be well placed at freeing their social workers up to do the kind of on the ground in the community work that I think navigating that complex social system really requires. Oakland County, for example, Oakland County here in Michigan, has done some tremendous work responding to homelessness. It's been one of the most progressive government agencies I've ever seen or worked with. And one of the things they did many years ago is they hired two homeless nurse navigators. 
And these are county employed nurses whose full-time job is to respond to the needs of homeless patients in the community, including literally walking them from the hospital doors to the service they're supposed to go to, coaching them on, on goals and checking in with them at, during their stay and kind of really providing the continuity of care that's really not present in the quote unquote continuum of care um, that exists in our communities. These are the kinds of services that we really need. And I think hospitals would do well to move away from that traditional office-based kind of social work model and, and into the community in that way. I think they'd see payback on it, in fact, in terms of recidivism and things like that. That's really interesting. I'd never thought about a medical social worker employed by a hospital doing their work out in the community, almost like a, a, a pre-admittance social work effort. It works so much better. That's such interesting work, Jason. I mean, yeah, just the way that you're able to get out and, and see healthcare out in the community in a way that I think resonates with everyone who's involved with healthcare. It's just a really interesting perspective. Yeah, it was fun work. I don't do a lot of academic work in that anymore, but I do a lot of community advocacy work, which has been fun and a different, a different take on it. Yeah, and something I, I think a lot of bioethicists end up getting into because when you see things that don't feel right, that don't feel just, it's hard to simply be an academic about them. You feel motivated to get into the community and do something about it. I'm sure a lot of people appreciate you and the work that you've done, both as an academic, but also as an advocate for people. Well, Jason, thanks so much for talking with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So what's actually the funniest is that so my, my family was... I sent it to them and they listened to it. And then I was getting all of these texts back from them about, man, Devin's voice is so good. I could listen to her all day. Like, what? how did you meet her? Like, is this like a charity case? Like, did she just... Yeah. So...